You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This week's guest is the former Chief Historian of the National Park Service, Bob Sutton. And what a wonderful conversation we had. His book, Nazis on the Potomac, tells the true story of the top-secret World War II military intelligence facility, P.O. Box 1142, present-day Fort Hunt, around 15 miles south of Washington, D.C. It was here, between 1942 and 1945, that around 3,500 high-level German prisoners were interrogated, captured documents analysed, and ways to help Americans escape and evade Nazis in occupied Europe studied. The story of P.O. Box 1142 is particularly incredible because many of the interrogators were German-born Jews. This story was almost lost to history, but thankfully because of the efforts of the National Park Service and Bob, it never will be. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you can leave even a sentence of feedback, it would also be truly appreciated. Remember, we have full transcripts, suggestions for further reading, links to historical documents and other goodies if you go to cyberwire.com forward slash podcast forward slash spycast. I just wonder to start off, can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about your book, Nazis on the Potomac? Because there's a, a literal component to the actual title, right? There were Nazis on the Potomac. There really were Nazis on the Potomac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, what happened with this book is um, I worked for the National Park Service. Uh, I was, uh, when I retired, I was a chief historian for the National Park Service. And in the about 2000, early 2000s, we found out that one of our parks, Fort Hunt, which is uh, in the D.C. area between Alexandria and Mount Vernon, was a secret location during World War II, so secret we didn't even know what it was. We owned, you know, we owned Fort Hunt, and we didn't even know what was going on there. But during World War II, uh, there were three programs that were functioning at Fort Hunt. One was uh, one to bring in the highest level, uh, not, not necessarily the highest level, but the highest value uh, Nazi um, prisoners. Uh, there were about 3,000 or so. Um, in all, into Fort Hunt, and they were interrogated. And then uh, there was a surveillance system that was set up, had microphones all around the fort, 
so they could listen in on conversations. Um, and in some cases, they used stool pigeons to get information out of them. Uh, so we had this we had this amazing story that we really had not known anything about. Uh, so that was another part of the program was uh, documents. Uh, there were a tremendous, huge number of captured German documents. And they were brought to Fort Hunt, and there were teams that actually went through and translated and interpreted the documents. The third program um, was a program called uh, for escape and evasion, and they developed packages for flyers, for American flyers, so if they were shot down or their plane went down for any reason, they could hopefully escape. So they had things that would tr- hopefully help them escape. But if they didn't, and they were in POW camps, they set up a, a very elaborate crypto communication system to communicate between Fort Hunt and prisoner PW, POW camps, and they would send uh, packages to them. And it's just, that's, that's an amazing story in and of itself. Uh, they would say, you know, a package is coming in such and such a time, and they'd look for it, and it would have things like radios that were hidden in baseballs, or radios that were hidden in cribbage boards, uh, maps that were hidden in game boards, and so forth. So these three programs were at Fort Hunt, and when when we found out about it, uh, when the Park Service found out about it, we started contacting as many of the veterans who had been stationed there as we could find. Unfortunately, most of them were gone. You know, by 2006 is when we really started this program. Most of the veterans who were there were had died, uh, unfortunately. But we were able to locate about 65 who were there, and we inter- we did oral history interviews with them, and so that sort of became the basis of this book. Now, to me, the most interesting part of the story was that many of the men who were soldiers at Fort Hunt, whom we interviewed, were actually German or Austrian Jews who were able to get out of Germany or Austria in the 1930s as children. So by this time, they were, they were either teenagers or young adults, and uh, they, they came to, they were, they were brought to Fort Hunt for, for obvious reasons. I mean, first of all, German was their, was their native language, so they could do interrogations, they could do document um, translations, they could listen in on conversations and so forth. But uh, the stories of many of these people, how they were able to get out of Germany or Austria in itself was a fascinating story. And then the interrogations were, were just really pretty amazing. So we had these wonderful interviews. We had made transcripts of them. Uh, most of them were actually videotaped as well. So we had, you know, we had like three different versions of each of these interviews, oral history interviews. And it looked like it was they're just maybe going to sit there. <laughs> so several years ago, um, I decided that um, with a little bit of prompting from a few people, uh, that really the story needed to be told. It needed to be something that wasn't going to just like vanish forever. And so that's how I um, got interested in writing the book. I mean, there's so much follow-up questions I have there. What a, what a fascinating thing to discover. Uh, World War II in terms of stories is just the gift that keeps on giving, right. isn't it? It is. You it thought is. you'd heard all of the amazing yeah. stories and another one comes up. Now, one thing that's, that is... Uh, part of the story is that all the people who were stationed at Fort Hunt were sworn to secrecy, and they were sworn to secrecy in such a way that they were sort of told that they would take this story with them to the grave. And by about 90s, by the 1990s, um, almost everything in in World War II um, had been declassified. So now this information was available. And a couple of these, a couple of people we interviewed, we had to like show them the interviews that they had conducted with their names had signed on it so that they would be comfortable telling us their stories. <laughs> wow. And where, like, where are all of these interviews and videos? Are they, public of, uh, are they publicly available? Can our listeners go and look at them? They or? can. They can. Uh, yes, Fort Hunt actually has posted 
um, most of the interviews. Um, I don't think they quite have all of them up yet, but most of them are are available. Okay, wow. And they go, if you go to the uh, National Park Service, Fort Hunt, uh, you can, I think, pretty easily get to the site and look at the interviews. So I haven't had a chance to go there yet, but I've been to Fort Washington just across the, right. the river. So at Fort Hunt, is there physical buildings and stuff that people can go to see or is it just a park now? So Fort Hunt has a, a very uh, interesting uh, history. It was part of uh, George Washington's plantation. It was actually the river plantation on his, his in his farm. And uh, around 1900, the uh, army, the, the American army realized that their, that their defenses on especially coastal defenses were just totally inadequate. Most of them dated even before the Civil War. So there was a huge effort to rebuild and build new uh, coastal defense systems. And of course, one of the major ones was on uh, the Potomac River. They already had Fort Washington, but they decided that they needed a fort on the other side of the river, so they built Fort Hunt. And so these are coast artillery batteries, so they, there's nothing you can do with them. I and mean, they're huge concrete installations, huge. And they, I mean, it would take, I don't even know how much it would take to, to blow them up, but uh, they're there. So the, the original Fort Hunt is still there. But everything from this period, from the uh, World War II period, is gone. There's one building there that's a C, um, an NCO quarters that dated from the early fort that's still there. There's a, uh, we actually have a, a, now have a plaque and a flag to commemorate Fort Hunt. There's still some, you can see some foundations if you're, if you're sort of uh, creative and walk around the fort, you can see some of the foundations from the buildings that were there. But part of the arrangement for using Fort Hunt in World War II, at the time it belonged to the National Park Service. And so the military had to get a cooperative agreement with the Park Service to use the fort during World War II. And the agreement was that they could use it during the war plus one year, but at the end they would have to, they'd have to get rid of all the buildings that they built, which they did. What an amazing story, and especially because there's three different parts to it. So I just wondered if you could tell us just a little bit more about them in terms of the first part, uh, Miss Y, Miss X, and then the uh, MIRS. So the first one is, as, as you said earlier, that's for interrogating high-level German prisoners, right. war scientists, and so weapon scientists, and so forth. The second part is escape and evasion for Americans that are in Europe. And then the final part is to analyze, as I understand it, literally tons of documents right. uh, that were captured. So where, where did those documents come from? Are they with the people that were there or were they sent over by the pilot from Europe? Or During, at the early part of America's uh, entry into World War II, they set up a pretty pretty sophisticated and elaborate system that worked pretty well. In the field, they had like an officer and a couple of enlisted men, and their main job was to capture every single document that they could find. If it was in German, they captured, they they got it. They didn't they didn't have to understand what it said. They didn't have to know anything about German, but if it, if they could see it was German, they would capture it. The first generally the first step of the of the process, um, they would uh, send these documents to London. There was a there was a, another office, MIRS, Military Intelligence Research Service. So uh, they, the first stop was London, and so they would do sort of the initial the analysis. Then they would package everything up and send it to Fort Hunt. And so there were literally tons, tons of documents. There were about twenty soldiers um, at in this in this section at Fort Hunt. Uh, the officer in charge was, he was born in Germany, but he came to the United States when he was very young. His name was John Kluge. And John Kluge, in the mid-1980s, was the richest man in the United States. He owned a company called Multimedia and <laughs> had nothing to do with his time at Fort Hunt. But uh, he was in charge, and all, all of the soldiers who were there were, were German um, immigrants, 
And there's one person there who I've become very, very close to. He's still alive. Paul Fairbrook is his name. And he has, he, I, I don't know that I could have written that section without his help. He had, he's kept a lot of the materials in his home. Uh, he copied them and sent them to me. And then I spent hours, you know, following up interviews with him, sharp as can be, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful resource. But what he said was that they, the documents would come in and then there were, uh, each man in this program had a specialty. So his specialty was the high command of the German army. And so this, they would come in in big sacks. Uh, they would dump the sacks out. They'd say, okay, you know, here's high command. Here's German youth. Here's this. And they, each person would have a specialty. And they, they became real experts at reading the German documents. Um, the Germans were fastidious record keepers. And that was probably good for them. But as a couple of people that we interviewed said, it probably was even better for the United States because uh, they learned how to interpret these things. So there was one document in particular called a pass in German. I don't remember what the German word was, but in, in uh, English, it's called a, they called it a passbook. Kind of like a passport, not quite the same, but it would have you know where they were from, where they had where they had fought, you know, with the different places they'd been. If they got an award, it would say what kind of award they got. And this turned out to be one of the really really good uh, sources of information were these passbooks. Another thing that Germans did was they were they the Germans actually had official brothels for the soldiers and sailors. And they were they were for the soldiers and for the sailors. I mean, that was part of one of the perks they had. But they were required to keep a card that said to which one they went to and who the person was that they saw. And that turned out to be a wonderful thing as well because some of these guys felt really guilty about going to these brothels. And so in the interrogation, they'd say, oh, you know, I saw that you went to brothel, blah, blah, and you met with Maria. How was that? And they, and the guy would be just absolutely stunned. How in the world would they know that I went to that brothel? And even more, how would they know that I saw Maria? Now, of course, the reason they had the name there was if there was a, a disease, you know, a BD that came, then they would know what to do with it. Uh, so some would go, you know, if they know that much, I might as well just tell them everything I know because they have amazing information. Or even better, they'd feel guilty and the more they pressed on the guilt, the more they would tell. And so those turned out to be amazing things. But uh, there was another thing that Paul Fairbrook found. Uh, he One of his things was to look at the organization chart of the high command. And right after the assassination attempt on Hitler, he uh, found that there was a new, a new box on this chart for a morale officer. And so he started digging and found out that this was established right after the assassination attempt. And what became more and more and more important toward the end of the war for Hitler was to make sure that all the soldiers were loyal. And uh, so he wrote a, he actually wrote up a little report on this. And um, I mean, it, and I, he actually sent me a copy of it. And But that's a, they, they, were, they were all just dedicated. They said... The people who were in the MIRS said that they didn't really have to be supervised. And John Kluge said they really didn't have to be supervised. They were so motivated that they just would almost be excited when this bag would come in with materials in it. And so uh, it's absolutely fantastic service. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. 
With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. It's interesting you mentioned John uh, Kluge. Before I came to the Spy Museum, I was at the Kluge uh Center at the Library oh, of Congress right? on a Kluge Fellowship. Yep. Uh, so small world. Um, well, you know the the funny thing was when we were interviewing soldiers, we couldn't get to him. We just they couldn't. And when actually when they interviewed Paul Fairbrook, he started. They started talking to him, and he said, "Well, have you interviewed John Kluge?" And they said, well, no, we can't get to him. He says, oh, well, I'll take care of that. So he picks up the phone. Hey, John, these folks from the Park Service want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and boom, they you know, were able to get in. And they actually, actually were able to interview him just a year or two before he passed away. Wow. And that interview is the public are able to get access to that interview? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So yeah. That's on the Fort Hunt site? Yes. Yeah. Wow. John Kluge's on there. Paul Fairbrook. Um, yes, they're all they're all on there, and, and I understand from from your uh, studies as well. The enlistees were given quite a degree of latitude to just do their thing. They were uh, absolutely, uh, so that, absolutely, and that's not always the case, right? Especially yeah. in World War Two. And uh, you know, it's funny. Um, they, uh, I think, John Kluge. One thing that he learned from this: if you have people that are dedicated, you kind of just turn them loose. Like they like he did with these folks, and um, Paul Fairbrook said that he Kluge really his German was not very good. I mean, he was from Germany, he was born in Germany, but he was his language was not the best, and so he understood that if you have all of these people who are fluent, I mean, that's their native language, just let them do it. And if you're a, a German Jewish refugee to the United States who cares about your people and about the course of the war, then you've got a lot of skin in the game. There's a lot of mo natural motivation that comes from that, right? Yes, and that was some of the questions we asked. There was one one person that I really wished I could have met him, but he was he was he had passed when I started on this book. His name was Rudy Pins, Rudolph Pins. And he gave a fantastic interview, um, but he also had a had published a brief... Um, autobiography from the time he was a child up to uh, and through World War II. What's fascinating is after that, we have absolutely no clue what he did. I mean, we interviewed him, <laughs> but, but he was very cagey about what he did after World War II. But what he talked about during World War during, he actually probably spent as much or more time at Fort Hunt than the others that we interviewed. He was there for, I think, about two-plus years. His primary duty was to do interrogations, but he also uh, did listening, you know, did uh, the uh, surveillance. And um, so his observations were very, very useful. And his family, uh, he was part of a program in, from Germany. There was a, a program that allowed, and it wasn't a federal program, it wasn't a government program. The government allowed it, but it wasn't an actual federal program. Uh, they allowed Jewish organizations to bring children over to the United States, about a 1,000. Actually, there were more than a 1,000. They could come over, and they could either stay with family members who were here or foster families. And so his parents found out about this program. Uh, Rudy Penn's parents found out about this program. Uh, they allowed him to come. He actually stayed with a family in um, Cleveland. So he actually was here for for quite a while, you know, sort of independently before World War II, talked about this whole thing. And he said that his parents allowed him to come because, and I'm sure this is true of many, many, many uh, German or Austrian Jews, they all thought that, that Hitler was an aberration, that he is so crazy that the German people just would not stand for it and they would vote him out of office and they could 
you know, join again as a big happy family, which of course they never did. So Rudy Penn's, his situation was true of many of the soldiers who were at Fort Hunt in that he was allowed to come over, but his family was still in Germany. And of course they perished in the, in the Holocaust. And some of them had, some of them came with their families to the United States. Many of them came with their families. For example, Paul Fairbrook came with his family to the United States. But I think everybody, I don't know that for a fact, but I think everybody, if they, if, even if they came with their families, they had extended families that were still in Europe who perished in the Holocaust. So they have this going on in their minds. So Rudy Penns, every time he interviewed a German soldier, he was thinking, my parents, I've lost contact with them. I don't know what's going on. Um, and so he had that sort of in the back of his mind every time he would er- interrogate a German. But he also realized that most of the people that he interviewed, there were some exceptions, some radical, you know, SS um, guys, but um, most of the people that he interviewed were soldiers who were doing their jobs as the same as he was doing his job. And he knew that if he were on the battlefield and they were on one side and he was on the other side, they both would try to kill each other. But in this case, he realized that they were doing their job and in many cases, they were, toward the end of the war, they were very open in talking and in, in giving information um, because I think they could kind of sense after, after D-Day, many of them could sort of sense that the war was probably going to end and not going to end well for the Germans. And so they were more, as the war progressed, they were more and more open about information. Wow. So the MIRS, that's really, really fascinating. And Miss X, that's the escape and evasion. And and the British counterpart to that is MI9, I believe. Right, right. And then there's also some really good books on this, Phil Froom. Tremendous, uh, tremendous yeah. information. <laughs> and actually, actually, there's been so much written there. One of the funny little stories about Fort Hunt, uh, in, the, in 1991, I think... I don't remember exactly the date. One of the soldiers who was in the escape and evasion program, his name was Schumacher, he wrote a book about, he called The Escape Factory. He wasn't supposed to. It was still secret. And when he wrote this book, the army tried to buy up every copy they could get. And it's still, if you want to get the hardback, it's very expensive because there aren't very many copies around. Eventually, it was also published in in softback. So uh, the park had actually a fair amount of information when they started doing the interviews. They had a f- quite a bit of information about the about the uh, escape and evasion program from this book, uh, from at least from one side of it. I mean, he was one of his jobs was to go out and get things that they could use to hide different like radios in. And so they, I mean, he was, that was one of his jobs. So I decided that uh, this escape and evasion piece would just be a chapter. Originally I was going to have it as an appendix, but I just, you know, it's so interesting. I felt, you know, you just have to include this. The other, the other reason I included it was because not only were everybody at Fort Hunt sworn to secrecy after the war, they were sworn to secrecy within Fort Hunt. So the people who were who were doing... Um, inter- now, of course, everybody knew that there were Germans there because they were all over the place. So, I mean, there's no, no secret about German prisoners being at Fort Hunt, right? But um, they didn't have a clue if you were, if you were doing... If you were an MIRS, you might have, Leonard, might have three meals a day with the guys in Escape and Evasion but you had absolutely no clue what they were doing and they had absolutely no clue what anybody else was doing. And it was, to me, that's one of the most fascinating parts of the story is they really took the secret piece seriously. Wow. And just before we pivot back to MISY, for Miss X, that was just an outpost at Fort Hunt or that was the headquarters and the main operation was there? The main operation was there, yes. Okay. They had several buildings where they uh, did. For one one part, it was the cryptology. And the guy who was in charge of cryptology, he was still... Actually, one of the things that is uh, in, the, in some ways sad, but in other ways wonderful, 
some of the people we interviewed, one the guy who developed the, the cryptology uh, program, Silvio Bedini, was literally in bed. I mean, it was in his last. He was in his last illness um, when he when we interviewed him, and I actually watched the video because I was fascinated with it. And he's in bed, and they're asking him questions when he's in bed, and his kids are there, you know, explaining things. And I go, whoa! And then a couple weeks later, he's gone. Um, and that happened with several. And there was one who um, the Park Service was ready to go and interview. Uh, fellow, I think he was in Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so they were ready to get on the plane. The family called and said that he had just gone into a coma, so they canceled their flight. Wow. Monday morning, the family called and said that he'd come out of the co- coma. Looked around, and he said, "Where's the park service?" <laughs> <laughs> they jumped on a plane and went and actually interviewed him as well. So a lot of these were, I mean, literally, they got it. They got the interview maybe weeks or months before these folks passed. Wow. It's, it's, it's just a, a really amazing story. And did the National Park Service, did they also, or do they also look after Camp Tracy? Camp Tracy was not part of the National Park Service. Okay. Uh, it wasn't. And actually, the the um, the only reason that, that there's a connection with the Park Service is because the Park Service actually owned the property. And they had it before and after World War II. So that's the only reason. That was the only really connection to the Park Service. I don't think the Park Service had a clue what was okay. going on there. <laughs> okay. I mean, most most people had, didn't yeah, have a clue yeah. what was going on. And just for our listeners, Camp Tracy, that was like a counterpart to Camp Hunt. And it was out in California and it had more Japanese pr- prisoners that were also being interrogated and so yes, forth. Yes, yes. Camp Tracy was in California. It had been a It had been a spa, actually. And the woman who who uh, owned the spa had lost her son in World War One, and so she made a deal. I don't remember what the army had to pay for it, Camp Tracy, but it was you know like minimal amount of money. And they it was essentially the same system, mm-hmm. set up the same system. The main difference, though, was that most of the soldiers who did the interrogations were not necessarily fluent in Japanese. And so the army actually hired Nisei, who were the second-generation Japanese, to do the actual questioning. And that actually had two purposes. One was the Japanese prisoners were far more uh, open talking to someone who, you know, a Nisei, than they were to talking to someone who was not. We didn't do too too many. We did one interview with a fellow who was there, um, he was actually raised in Japan. He understood Japanese fairly well, but he couldn't speak it very much. So that was the, and apparently that was fairly common. And so uh, he was at Camp Tracy. The thing that that to me is fascinating about Camp Tracy is that um, Japanese, their culture was you don't, you just don't get captured. I mean, it was in their in their little their little book that they carried with them. You don't surrender. You just don't. Well, some of them did, <laughs> and when they did, they were brought to Camp Tracy. And it was the same thing. They would be interviewed. One thing about both Camp Tracy and Fort Hunt, soldiers, either Japanese or German soldiers, would be interviewed. But as soon as the interview was over, in most cases, they'd send them on to a POW camp. So they were not a official POW camps because technically you weren't supposed to interrogate people. But they did. And so they, it was kind of a gray area, but they considered it a temporary site rather than a permanent POW camp. Wow. So the interviews for the National Park Service, were you involved in any of them, Bob? Or? I was not. I was not. Actually, I, came, I became chief historian um, fairly late in the process and there was an article, a wonderful article in the uh, Washington Post, just like the weekend before I was actually started as chief historian, and I did not know about this program. And so I, the superintendent at the George Washington Parkway, which runs Fort Hunt, was a good friend of mine. Um, I had been the superintendent at Manassas Battlefield, and of course knew all the superintendents in, in this region. And so um, he was a good friend. So I called him up and I said, look, I really want to find out about this program. And so within a week or so, I went over and met with him and met with all, the, all of the folks who were doing the um, oral history interviews. 
And we started talking, and um, they said, you know, we're, we're going to sort of wind down because we don't, we, we've interviewed about everybody that we can in this area, but we don't really have any travel money. So I said, well, how about if I find you some travel money? And I was new, so I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could. So I was actually able to find enough money so they could actually go and do all of the interviews where they were required to travel. Wow. So that was my contribution. <laughs> and of course, I was very interested in uh, some of the people they were interviewing. And I also was very interested in um, looking at their technique. I actually had, uh, eventually, within a year or so when I was there, I, had, I actually hired a woman who was her specialty was oral histories and... So uh, I made sure that what they were doing was what they were supposed to do. You know, the, the best tech, the best practices for doing oral, and they absolutely were were first rate. And then we helped doing some of the we helped we actually helped do some of the transcripts from the interviews. And how did you do the research for the book? Did you read the transcripts or listen to the interviews or both? Both. Both. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And actually, actually, mostly. Um, as I really got into the book, uh, of course, COVID came along, and the park the park archives were closed, the national archives were closed. So fortunately, I had done quite a bit of work before COVID came, and uh, so I had I had most of the inter- information I needed, but there were uh, I couldn't I couldn't you know follow up with some things. And the other thing I was frustrated with, I would come across something in an interview. And I go, darn, why can't I go back and talk to this guy? Because I, I want to find out more about this little piece here. And, of course, most of them were gone. But there were five, there were five soldiers or four soldiers who were there who were still alive. I talked to them extensively. Um, and um, it was very, very helpful because there were, there were some, some of the really critical questions that I had, they were able to answer. So, um, like Paul Fairbrook was, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that I could have done the chapter. I could have, but it would have been very, very, very different had I not been in touch with him. And just before we go on to discuss uh, MISY a little bit more in the interrogations, can you just for our listeners, how is the National Park Service set up for? for something like this. So everybody's got an idea in their mind about the National Park Service, which is picked up largely from popular culture or the occasional week, you know, going out into the the other parts of the country. But in terms of the management of historical sites or in terms of interpreting them, Mm -hmm. just give us the cliff elevator version of how that happens, if possible. first of all... (laughs) About two-thirds of all national park units are historical or cultural, and so that's one thing. And in some cases, the documentation is excellent. I mean, there's really good documentation for whatever site that we interpret, um, either from, um, from documentary research or from archaeology. And so we have, we have generally pretty good information. So, for example, I... Uh, was a superintendent at at Manassas Battlefield. I mean, there are just volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes, both of documents, memoirs, just all kinds. You know, there's tremendous information on on Civil War battlefields. A superintendent is the person that runs the site? Yes, I was the boss. I ran the site. So tremendous information. I mean, essentially anything you need to know, we had. Um, so that's that is one end of the spectrum. But then there are some like Fort Hunt. We did not know the story at all. We didn't. I mean, it just wasn't there. But one thing that we've done at many of our parks, not all, unfortunately, but we have a historical resource study. That's that's one of the programs that we have. Um, and there had been one done for Fort Hunt. And that's that's how they essentially discovered about this program because the the uh, when he was when this person was working in the uh, archives, he found out that the that the uh, the story about about these programs at Fort Hunt uh, was declassified, and so he actually had a little one chapter on this on this program, and so that's one of the best ways that we have of um, 
learning about the history of a site will actually will act a commission. In some cases, we have people on on staff that do this, not very often, but we commission uh, a historic resource study to be conducted on a park, and they'll go they'll find everything that there is available on that site. Uh, unfortunately, we have not been able to do that with all of our parks, but but many we have, and it's it turns out to be a very valuable resource. Doing what we did at Fort Hunt is actually fairly unusual, uh, where we didn't know the story. We were able to locate people. We were able to get the money. Um, with the, the park had money. I was able to provide some money so we could do. We could actually interview everybody that we found. That's that's relatively unusual to, to have that level of of oral history. But um, I, one of the things I did as chief historian was I hired a, a historian, Luann Jones, who actually is a one of the one of the highest regarded uh, oral historians in the country. And so she has set up an oral history program um, throughout the Park Service to do things like this. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. So just to stay on the National Park Service for one one more minute, the, so you've got the chief historian. Uh, help us understand how many historians do you have? How many? How is it structured? Is there some kind of central historical office, or does each site have, you know, someone that's uh, doing some research? It, I mean, it, I just say this because there are just some absolutely phenomenal public historians in the National Park Service. Mm-hmm. Like when you go to these sites, the, they're just knocking it out of the park. So, how did they get that knowledge? How is history structured in the park in terms of education and interpretation? Well, the I was a chief historian, and I had an office. Um, it shrank. It was by the time I got there, it was shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. I had uh, four historians working for me when I when I left, and they were all phenomenal. So you know, I I was very lucky. Um, so that was the chief historian's office. Now we we were independent. Now we would do work like, for example, this project at Fort Hunt. I mean, I get involved in that. Uh, one of the things that I felt was important as chief historian was to get parks that had similar themes working together. So when I sent, when I gave the folks at Fort Hunt the money to do oral history interviews around the country, I said, look, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to go to, if you're in San Francisco, you're going to go to Golden Gate Park because there's a huge uh, World War II story there, and you're going to get them involved. Or here, locally, um, some of the sites here, uh, Prince William Forest Park, uh, which is a camp park. During World War II, the OSS trained at trained there, <laughs> and that's a story. So what I tried to do was to get stories like Fort Hunt, where uh, Fort Hunt is primarily a picnic area. You know, if you go there today, it's a fantastic picnic and recreation area. But it had the story as well. So everybody looks at it as a picnic area. But I thought that there were a lot of stories um, of World War II in parks that were not being interpreted as World War II stories. And so that was what I thought part of my job was, was to get parks that have similar themes working together, sharing information. And 
Part of the reason for that was when I was at Manassas Battlefield, we had done that with Civil War battlefields. As we were working toward the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, uh, we all started communicating uh, amongst ourselves about how we could interpret the Civil War better. For example, uh, what's the most important story about the Civil War? Well, the most important story is that it was really fought over slavery, period. That was it. I mean, there are other things too, obviously. But we wanted Parks to be able to feel comfortable interpreting the institution of slavery as part of their theme studies or theme, theme stories. And so uh, by working together, we, they were more comfortable doing that. And, of course, people that didn't think that was the right story were not comfortable, and we got a lot of criticism for it. But uh, that was what I saw as, as one of my jobs as chief historian. Now, in Parks, you were asking about, about beyond the chief historian's office. Um, we had uh, regional offices, re I think seven regions. I've been retired for a couple of years, so if I get some of the numbers wrong. <laughs> we have regional offices around the country, and each, each of those offices have a regional historian. Uh, so what their job is is kind of like mine, but their job is to work with parks within their region to tell stories within their regions. And so that's their story. And then there are, there are many parks that have a, a historian on staff. So, for example, a Civil War battlefield typically has a historian on staff. Not all. When I retired, I believe there were about 200 historians that had the classification as historian. In other words, the it's in the federal government, it's 170, the 170 series. Uh, they were actually classified as historians. But beyond that, we probably had um, hundreds, many hundreds of historians who were really historians. They were trained as historians. That was what their degree was in, in some cases even advanced degrees. But their classification was not as a historian. So they might have been an interpreter. Uh, they might have been a ranger. It, just depended, but there are a lot of historians that are not classified as historians. And across the, just before we pivot back to this story, across the National Park Service, is the intelligence and espionage, is that quite common for there to be some component of that attached to a park or is it rare? Very, uh, very rare, very rare. I can't think of too many that where that was. I mean, San Francisco, obviously that was part of the story there. <laughs> and and literally, uh, Prince William Forest Park, where the OSS trained, that's part of the story there. But that's extremely rare. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so let's uh, let's go back to the um, the interrogations of the Nazis on the Potomac, where we started the interview. So, what kinds of information did they get? I know that from the MIRS, the they were able to build up orders of battle and help yeah. guide commanders for engagements and so forth. But for the interrogations, what kind of information did they get? Actually, if I can go back to MIRS oh, sure. for just a minute. The most important thing that they did was called the Red Book, the Order of Battle of the German Army. And it was a very comprehensive uh, book volume. There were three that were published during World War II, and that was their primary focus was to publish this, and it was enormously helpful. It had every single regiment, every or every single division in the German army, who was the commander, who was the chief of staff, where it was, where it had been, what its function was, and so forth. And so uh, that was a tremendously important part of MIRS. And for, or, uh, for order of battle, for our listeners that are not familiar, this is just the disposition and organization of forces, right? Yes. I, when I was writing the book, um, someone, I, I actually had a few people look at it, you know, to make sure that, that everything was clear. And someone pointed out and said, you know, listeners aren't going to know what, what the order of battle I'm is. I'm glad I brought it up. <laughs> because because uh, they're going to think that, you know, that... It's a, it's, a, it's a documentation of all the different battles that the German armies fought in. No, actually, it's very different. What it is instead, that's what they call it, but what it is, it, it's a documentation of all the different units and what they do and the functions. And they would have, for example, there was, uh, by the last volume that they published, uh, there was an extensive discussion of the uh, Gestapo, the SS, and uh, the different functions and how they, you know, some of the real horrible parts of it. So that was the, that was a, a big part of the MIRS. 
Okay, and now, now we're getting back to that. <laughs> and now I've got one final question about MIR. Oh dear. <laughs> I all, opened up a floodgate. <laughs> all of those tons of documents, are they publicly available? Pretty much, yes. And where, where, where at are the they? archives, in the archives. At the National Archives. Mm-hmm. And so, then after World War II, a lot of these people continued after World War II. And so um, the, the folks who were involved in MIRS, they actually were sent to Camp Ritchie, and I'll talk about that here in a minute, but they were sent to Camp Ritchie uh, with tons and tons and tons of more of German documents to catalog. And so uh, they actually cataloged all the things they had during World War II and then all the things that they had um, after the war uh, are at the archives. And they're pretty well uh, cataloged. So for our listeners... The National Park Service is not, it's not a repository where people can go and look at our primary sources or oral generally, histories. Generally not. Most of what we have is copies. So, for example, the uh, Fort Hunt, their, their uh, library is part of the George Washington Parkway. And so all of these interviews are there, all the different functions of these interviews. And then some of the documents they collected are there. For example... When they would do a copy of a transcript of an interview that they could show to the person they were interviewing to show that they could talk about what they were <laughs> what they had done, those are there. But there aren't there aren't a huge number of them. But that's that's very unusual to have original documents in a park. Wow! And there's so much questions that I would love to ask you about the increase in politicization of history and the history and the culture wars, but I think that's for uh, a different conversation. <laughs> so let's Sure, we can talk about it, but not today, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's, let's go back to Nazis on the Potomac. That's such an interesting story, and we've touched on all these other parts, so let's get back to your book. So we've got this place, we've got uh, 3,000... Germans who are interrogated. Uh, we've got German and Austrian emigres who who do the the interrogations. Tell us a little bit more about that. So, who are some of the high profile or most notable prisoners who get interrogated? Or give us a story or two. Give us give, give our listeners a couple of things just to hang their hat on. Well. Um... Let me. Can I back up just a little sure. bit? Sure. Um, just, just, You're the expert. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be useful to understand um, these these people. I mean, they understood German, right? They were they were German immigrants. German was their first language, but they didn't have a clue what they were going to be doing. The one one way many of these soldiers were identified, you know, they'd been drafted. They'd be at Fort something or other, either in training or, or you know, be assigned. To, and, the, and the commanding officer would hear their German accent. They'd say, oh, are you German? Yes, I'm German. And one, one person that I talked to, Peter Weiss, said that his commander said, are you German? Yes. Well, can you speak some German to me? So he had a, spewed off a whole thing of, of Goethe. <laughs> But they didn't have a clue what they were going to be doing, right? So many of them, not all of them, but many of them went to a training facility in Maryland called Camp Ritchie, which I mentioned earlier, for training. And there would be different things, different parts of training. They all had sort of a basic uh, training exercises there, but they were trained for all kinds of intelligence operations. Most of them actually went to Europe. Just a small percentage of them actually went to Fort Hunt and, and and elsewhere in the States. So they would have, they'd teach them um, training techniques. And what they would do is they'd have German-speaking Americans dressed up in Nazi uniforms, and they'd start interrogating them. And they would do, on these, these, these uh, the American Nazis, quote Nazis, would do everything they could to trip up these poor trainees. And there's one story that, is, that I thought was one of the funniest stories in the, the, that I put in the book, in a training exercise, this um, American uh, German uh, not, in a Nazi uniform started talking about a goulash cannon. Now, if you translate that into English or even German, it sounds like a, uh, a cannon 
and goulash is a, is a uh, uh, beef stew, right? So he talks about this goulash canon. Well, his poor trainee has no clue what a goulash canon is. Well, like a lot of things in the military, it's an acronym. And what a goulash canon was was actually a field kitchen, right? This poor guy is just so lost with this. And so the guy is just having a lot of fun with him. So eventually this, there's goulash going down the mountain. And, and, and this, he's so frustrated that he, he just has a really hard time with it. So they would do everything they could to throw them off. And some of them actually didn't, weren't able, not able to continue. So they were very, very well trained both to do interrogations in the United States or in Europe um, at Camp Ritchie. So many of them went through that training program. Um, and it was trained them both as to do documents as well as to do interrogations. And for the interrogations, uh, Fort Hunt, uh, I read one quote and someone was saying that it was a battle of wits, but there was, it was. but they never laid a hand on any of the prisoners. That was, that was the, to me, the most important part of the story. Uh, and I actually learned that when I first learned about this program because they had a, in uh, uh, 2007, just as I said, just before I became the chief historian, um, they had a um, reunion at Fort Hunt where they invited all the soldiers there. And they made it very, very, very clear that they never, ever used corporal punishment on the German soldiers. Never, ever. And it just, and to me, that stuck with me. That was just one of the most important things. And of course, it was right after Abu Ghraib. So, I mean, there was a good reason why they talked about it. But that was a, that was a really important part of the story. Mm-hmm. And I understand that one of the tricks that they had was saying, if you don't talk to us, you're getting sent to the Soviet Union right. and you can speak to them. There were two uh, Russian-American soldiers at Fort Hunt dressed in Red Army uniforms. And uh, so if, and in some of the interviews, we actually were able to find even, I think, two German uh, prisoners who'd been there. And so they were able to talk about it from that side. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they would say, you know, you don't want to talk to me? Fine. Ivan here would be glad to take you to the Soviet Union. Maybe they would like to hear what you had to say. And generally that would work. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that they did before that, they would do everything they could to make their lives comfortable, the German lives comfortable. So they had all kinds of recreation activities at Fort Hunt. If they, if they provided information, they'd take them to a steak dinner um, in town, take, take them to a movie. Uh, so they did everything they could to treat them well, but that was, the, that was sort of the, the, the one thing that they had up their sleeve <laughs> if someone was not talking. And where were a lot of these Germans from? Did they typically come from certain places? Were they um, submariners, sailors, army? Early on, early on, most of the prisoners were from the Navy, uh, from captured U-boats. And uh, so most of them were, were uh, mariners early on. Um, later, they were sort of, they became rarer and rarer. But uh, some of the early ones, this is one of, the, one of the techniques they had that worked extremely well when they were listening in on conversations and some of the, some of the earliest prisoners actually uh, volunteered for this. A lot of them didn't want to be in the in the army or the navy. They just they didn't, and they made it very clear that 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 they had no loyalty to the German government. And of course, they had to go through different things to convince the Americans that was the case. So they became what the what the uh, soldiers referred to as SPs, which stood for stool pigeons. And so they would room with some of these German prisoners. And so they would try to draw out in, the, in, in conversations the information that, that they weren't necessarily getting in the interrogations. And they, that turned out to be probably the best thing that they used for the uh, surveillance program. Wow. And tell us about the case of Werner Henke, Werner, uh, the commander Hunt, of Hunt, Youth. Yeah, he was, he was a... Youth 515. Uh, yeah, he was a, he was a, a U-boat commander, actually one of the most decorated commanders in the German army, and he was a uh, he was he was a really arrogant person, according to, to all the reports. Um, uh, 
He, and he actually thought that the Germans were were probably not going to win the war, not because they just thought he thought they were they were so that Hitler was a, was a joke, and they really could win if they had like someone like him in charge. That's a, probably a little bit more elaboration than than I probably should use, but uh, he was terrified that he was going to be turned over to the British because he'd sunk many, many British ships, and he'd be executed by the British. He was afraid of that. Now, he would, it would not have happened. I mean, everything he did was as, a, was as a commander. He didn't do anything out of the ordinary. I mean, you, what you do as, you're, as a U-boat commander is you shoot down ships. That's what you do. Uh, but anyway, he was terrified that he was, that, that was going to be shipped off. So he uh, tried to escape from Fort Hunt he was shot as he was scaling the wall. He did it in broad daylight. Um, it, uh, I think, almost certainly was he was he was committing suicide by someone else shooting him, mm-hmm. right? And that was the only that was the only case of a prisoner that we know of who tried to escape, who was killed trying to escape from Fort Hunt. Wow. And just out of interest, have you came across that 1993 book, Lone Wolf, by Timothy Mulligan? I have. I is have. It, is it, would you recommend it? That's wonderful. It's fantastic. Okay. In fact, uh, he and I, one of the first things I did, actually even before my book came out, um, he and I were on a program uh, with a local library. And uh, it was a lot of fun because I thought I knew a fair amount about Hanky. Uh, Henka, I think. I can't. I'm not German. I don't speak Hinka. German. But Hinka, yeah. Uh, anyway, I he he had so much information. It was wonderful, wonderful to be on this program with him. But yes, it's a fantastic book. Wow, and I believe that 32 Germans and three Italians that were held at Fort Hunt are buried at Fort Meade. Is that is that correct? Yes. And where for me is it publicly accessible, or is it? I I honestly don't know. Not sure. I do not know. Yeah. Wow. And I, and I I also read just out of interest. I also read that the German naval attaché every November goes and lays a wreath at the graves of the of the Germans that are buried there. But I yeah. have heard that too, but I don't know <laughs> if it's sure. Okay. Another thing that we've not discussed is. You maybe touched on it briefly, but this was so sensitive and, and it was known as P.O. Box 1142. Right. And, th- and this story only came out really in the, in the 2000s, right? Right. That was, that was part of the, you know, it's never called Fort Hunt, ever. P.O. Box 1142. So by calling it Fort Hunt, we're really just reimposing the name we of are, the place yes. that was right, okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I actually, it'd be interesting uh to know, because I don't know that this ever came out in any of the or, of the interviews, but it'd be interesting to know if the soldiers who were there actually knew that the historical name was Fort Hunt. I wonder. Yeah. And and for, going back to the intelligence that was gathered from these interviews um, helps understand some of the effects that I had to believe that one was that the Germans were loading supplies at railway crossings right. rather than at the heavily bombed stations. And another one was they were building fake concrete structures around submarine mm-hmm. pens to distract Allied aerial bombings and so forth. So, yeah, he- f- flip, well, flesh there, that out for so, us. So, yes, there's, there are a lot of uh, stories about things that they learned uh, from, the in- from the interrogations and from the, uh, from the uh, surveillance. So... One one of the soldiers said that he, when he was listening surveillance in the rooms, he heard one of the officers talking to a man saying that um, the the you wouldn't the Germans wouldn't have to worry because they had developed a rocket program that was going to change the whole course of the war. Pianamunde. Again, I can't pronounce German. I can't. Pianamunde. <laughs> Pina, Pina yeah. Pina I've yeah. been there. It's a fascinating city. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've not been there, but. Anyway, so he said, you know, that's going to change the war. Well, of course, they pass that along very quickly. Uh, and they don't know exactly what happened. They don't know whether the information didn't get to the right people, whether they actually knew about it, but really couldn't do much about it at that time. Um, 
they just don't know. But that was one of the things. One of the, they, they actually heard people talking about the rocket program at Pinamunda. Okay, wow. Um, another thing that they heard was that the all the plans for the rocket program were hidden in a salt cave. And there was a, a German uh, miner, salt miner, who could show them where this salt cave was. Well, of course, that is huge information because the the Russians were as interested in finding this as the Americans, and so uh, uh, they got the name of this of the miner who knew where it was, took them there, and then there's a whole description. I actually read. I didn't. I don't think I put it in the book, but a whole description of what they found and how they were able to to get the information from um, out of there. But as you mentioned, there were a couple of of stories about the railroads, uh, the the Americans, the Allied would bomb railroad stations and railroad depots where, where supposedly they were loading information. And they would think that they had, that they'd taken out all the, all the rolling stock. But the next day it looked like nothing had changed at all. So part of the information that they got was that uh, the Germans were actually loading and unloading trains uh, at crossings. And they could do that essentially anywhere. And so they started, so then the pilots started looking for crossings. Uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, surveillance would look for different crossings where it looked like there were, there were trucks that were, that were there and then they'd send the bombers in. And that actually worked very well. And then uh, I believe Hamburg was where the... the, the um, they used the fake cover over the submarine pens. And the next day, the same thing. Submarines are going everywhere, and they couldn't understand how that could happen. Well, then when they found out that, no, they weren't actually there, they were in a little bit further, they had more effect with that as well. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the things that they learned. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you've brought a, an amazing part of history to light with Nazis on the Potomac. So congratulations on the book. And Thank you. Uh, I look forward to any follow-ups that come from it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. <laughs>